So if you know me or at all, or you're new here and you're getting to know me, um, it might come as no surprise to you that I really love musicals. How are many love them? Good musical in the place. Yes, yes. It's not just for girls, okay? Don't give me the. Some of those boys are like. I know some of you men love a good musical. Don't worry about that. Uh, my my favorite musical. I would I would argue all day long that the best musical is probably. Anybody want to guess what I'm going to say? What? No, Sound of Music classic. Not the best. High School Musical not on the list. Actually, nowhere on the list. <laughs> What's that? Greatest Showman. I just watched it again the other day. Fantastic. Not classic enough. Singing in the Rain. Oh, guys, see how many people love musicals? The fact that you can even name them. What do you think? Les Mis. There's my family back there going, Les Mis. <laughs> I, I've seen Les Mis on, uh, on Broadway. And my life changed forever that day. Uh, somebody actually gave me the, the, the soundtrack on CD when I was maybe, I don't know, 13 years old or something like that. And that's all I listened to for, I don't know, two years. So I have the whole soundtrack memorized. And so I love Les Mis. Uh, it's probably the best. I would argue with you all day long about that. It's a little sad and dark. I know that. It's not quite Greatest Showman. Like, it doesn't quite have the same happiness going on there. But I will say this, um, and this is kind of where I'm going with this. My second favorite, they guessed Les Mis online? Really? No. Hey, off campus, well done to you. You says a little secret. There's a little secret thing going on here. The people in the room don't get it. They're not, they're not online. They don't know. My second favorite is something very different than that dark, sweeping, redemption-driven story set against the French Revolution. That is Les Mis. But this story that I'm going to talk about uh, for a second is a story based on real events at the end of the 19th century. People dared to stand up against the establishment and spread a new message and set people free from uh, the oppression that they were under. This is the story. Yes, it is the 1992 Disney movie, Newsies. It's good. Yes. And it is now a multi-Tony award-winning Broadway show. And if you have not seen Newsies, I mean, the Broadway show is actually really good. The original Disney movie was better, if, in my opinion. Uh, it's about the Newsboys strike of 1899 in New York and how they rallied the kids that were working in sweatshops to demand decent working conditions and fair wages, which is a really good thing. And it's a just, honestly, you all, it's a triumph. It's a triumph. And if you have Disney+, Plus, you probably it's probably on there if you want to watch it. Uh, and also, a young Christian Bale is in the starring role of this movie. Christian Bale sings and dances in this movie, and I still cannot get Rob to watch it with me. It doesn't matter. If, it doesn't matter that Christian Bale is a good Batman. He will not watch Newsies with me anyway. That has very little to do with my message. I just wanted to share that information with you. But I'm going somewhere with this, as per usual. I'm telling you this so you get a picture of where my head was at uh, when I was planning this Easter series. Because this is the launch now today of our Easter series. This is just like this microphone is driving me bananas. Uh, I, several months ago, we decided that we wanted to talk about the gospel uh, and the, the good news and why, why the gospel is such good news for the world. And we thought it would be really interesting to share the gospel story from the perspective of each of the gospel writers. Because as you probably know, there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they each present the good news in a unique way that uh, really adds depth and understanding for us of Jesus and his work. 
So I started to think about, um, as you do, I started to think about the graphics and I started to think about uh, things like good news and newspaper and headlines and newsies. Yeah, carrying the banner. Open the gates and seize the day. Uh, give me one second. Hold on. I can't. I can't even. I won't be able to preach the rest of this message like this. I feel free. I feel free. Thank you. Okay. So I'm talking about like newsies and carrying the banner and all of these things and how they literally were bringing the news every single day. And so as I'm preparing this message, because I love musicals and because I think in musicals all of the time, I was just like, uh, every day, every time I'm thinking about this message, and I was telling Pastor Ethan, who is doing, who does our graphics for us, I'm like, it's got to be a newspaper. It's got to be like gospel. It's got to be like headlines. It's got to be like whatever. And he's like, all right, that's cool. And meanwhile, he doesn't know that I'm like, open the gates and seize the day, like all the whole time. I hope that is an earworm for you, and I hope you watch the movie. But I started to really think about headlines and and good news and like just news at all, and I started to see how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John could be sort of like standing on the street like a newsboy with their newspaper and each one of them with a different headline. Same story, different headline. It's like Mark is standing there, extra, extra, read all about it. Jesus is the sacrifice and servant. Or like Luke is standing there saying, his headline says, Jesus is the truth, exclamation point. Or there's the the apostle John, exposed. Jesus is God and he is love. I like that. Better than our headlines today, I'm just telling you. And so for today, we're going to start with Matthew, which is sort of like breaking news. Jesus is king. So I want to share this news that broke in the first century. And it's very, very good news. That Jesus, that Jesus, this Jesus you've heard about, he really is the king that you've been looking for. So in the same way that we have different newspapers, even if they're probably mostly online, I don't know how many of you guys still get a newspaper delivered to your home, uh, but we have different newspapers for different regions or groups of people or languages. And each reporter, um, even if they are fair and unbiased in their work, which I hope they are, each reporter has a style that's intended for their particular audience, depending on who they're writing for. And that's kind of what we see in the four Gospels. Each, each covers the same story, but certainly specific themes emerge that relate specifically to their intended audiences. And the Gospel of Matthew is actually the early church's most widely read and frequently used Gospel. It had the most complete compilation of Jesus' teaching, his exhortations, his prophecies, and parables that's found anywhere in Scripture. And so as you look through the Gospel of Matthew, um, different things start to emerge. I mean, you could take this uh, main purpose or main themes for, the go- for any of the Gospels, and you could look at it from a lot of angles. We're obviously going to pick one lane this morning. But one thing that seems to be one of Matthew's main purposes in the writing of this Gospel is that he wanted people to know that Jesus really is the Messiah. And not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Because this point comes up over and over again. And his strategy in doing that, as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, is to show how Jesus' life and ministry fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. He literally says that over and over again in this account. And to show how uh, Jesus comes from the Davidic line, from the line of King David himself, 
And that makes him the true king. And this is very, very important in this gospel. So who was reading it uh, when, when, when he's thinking about his audience? It was definitely a Jewish audience. There's lots of things that point to that. But there's also, and, and of course, Jewish Christians, those who had now come to Christ. He's writing this account for them. And you can really sense that because uh, obviously Christianity was born out of Judaism. For a long time, uh, Judaism or Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism. And you read, when you're reading the gospel, there are some things that might not translate for us because we are not mostly, and I'm not sure, maybe some of you are, but uh, mostly we're not Jewish. We don't have that cultural heritage. And certainly 2,000 years have passed culturally since this was written. But you see in this gospel those, these things that point to that, uh, the original readership being Jewish Christians. Because there's a real concern with the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. There's more quotes and allusions to the Old Testament in Matthew than any other gospel. You see Matthew tracing Jesus' descendants from Abraham. There's also a lack of uh, Jewish customs being explained. So in like, for example, the gospel of Mark, Mark often spells out why things are, why they're doing certain things. Like we did this because of this. In Matthew, he just assumes that the, you can just tell he assumes that the readers or the listeners know what he's talking about. And there's some really specific Jewish terminology in the Gospel of Matthew. And I hadn't seen this one before. I thought it was so interesting when I was studying it that in the Gospel of Matthew, you read the kingdom of heaven more often than not. But in the other Gospels, you might read the kingdom of God. And you might think, is that two different kingdoms? It's not. It's just that in in Jewish um, tradition, saying the name of God was really like, really, they actually really tried not to. Because the name of God was so holy, and they had so much reverence and awe for the name of God. And if you read in the Hebrew scriptures, so in the Old Testament, the name of God is usually uh, replaced with something else. It's why we used to say Jehovah, and now we often will say that that name was Yahweh, because we really don't know how to translate it, because not all the letters are actually in the spelling of the name of God. Because it was just like, we just don't, it's so holy to us, we just, we can't. We don't want to just throw the name of God around. And so in Matthew's gospel, you'll read about the kingdom of heaven. And he's, we, scholars think it's because he was being so cautious about the use of the name of God, as would be his tradition. There's also this emphasis on Jesus' role as the son of David, which we're going to get into here. However, it's obvious that, while it is obvious that Matthew's writing to the Jewish people uh, more specifically, Matthew was very clear on one fact, and that is that the gospel, this good news, was for everybody. His gospel starts with a story we don't see anywhere else in scripture, which is the the visit of the wise men or the magi. They were definitely Gentiles, and what what did the magi come to do? To worship the king, right? And then, of course, the very end of the gospel of Matthew has, has him recording Jesus' uh, incredible couple of verses right at the end, Matthew 28. And we call these verses the Great Commission. And he records Jesus telling the disciples to go into where? All the world. And so you understand that while, while Matthew knew his specific audience, he also wanted them and us to understand that this gospel was not just for the Jewish people. Turn your Bibles real quick to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just see how he starts this gospel. This is going to help us a lot in understanding what we need to understand uh, for ourselves and our lives too. Very simple. 
It's up on the screen for you, and you can follow along with all of this, of course, in the version app under more and then events, and then follow along here. Matthew 1, 1 says this. This is the lineage. I actually didn't even write it all down. This is the gene- <laughs> I just wrote a little notebook about it. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you're like, cool. I have a family tree too. Yes. It's very specific. <laughs> this is a very, very specific way to start this genealogy. Because right here in the first verse of his gospel account, he is saying, this Jesus that I'm, I'm telling you about here, I'm going to write about, is fulfilling two major promises. Second Samuel 7 records the promise to David that he would uh, have someone on the throne from his lineage forever. And he's recording uh, the promise to Abraham, which was that through him, all nations would be blessed. So right here he's saying, you can follow this all the way back and see that Jesus fulfills this promise, these two major, major promises right from the get-go. Also, uh, you know, Jesus is saying, Matthew records Jesus saying things like, he has to go first to the lost sheep of Israel, that would be the, the line of David, and to keep that promise to David. But then salvation is also extended to the Gentiles to keep that promise to Abraham. You can read that. Gives us a couple of different places. This was a fascinating study, by the way. Um, we're having a lot of fun doing this. Um, I've, I've finished my message about Luke. Pastor Aaron's doing Mark next week. But to look at these Gospels from this point of view is really interesting. And so I want to invite you. Some people are like, how do you know all of these things? I read them in books. It's really easy. You can do it too. It's fun. Uh, there's lots of books called commentaries, and they have a lot of things. But do you know where I found a ton of really, really useful information about these messages that you might be able to do today if you wanted to? Do anybody have a study Bible? You know the pages at start each chap each uh, book of the Bible? There's like, you know, I don't know, like depending on the book, but uh, there's like five, six pages about like the authorship and like, the context and like the culture and like the, the readers. I just read that and I was like, this is really helpful stuff, right? So you might even have that in your Bible right now. Uh, you can you can do that for yourself. And I would encourage you, if you were in a new book of the Bible, you don't know kind of what the context is, do this work. It is so helpful to see things through this lens and you can, it's a really simple study to do. I used um, also the NIV application commentary. I often use it, but uh, in this particular study, they're very readable. So if you're looking for other resources to go deeper into these books, I would just suggest those. You can get them uh, anywhere. Amazon, Kobo, Kindle, like they all, they come digitally. They come in hard, uh, hardback. Uh, so anyway, just so that was a side note. I just want you to know. It's not, it's not rocket science. You could do it too. You might be looking, you can look, some of you are looking at your Bibles right now. I can hear you turning pages. I love that for you. Be free. Be free to go and take a look. So it's no wonder that this particular gospel was the most widely read in the early church with all of these elements coming together. It was sort of like an apologetic tool for the Jewish Christians. It was encouraging them to stand firm in the face of opposition from the Jews. So this is probably written uh, maybe 30 or 40 years after Jesus was on the earth. So a lot had happened in the early church in those few decades. And they're now receiving this, this gospel account from Matthew, who was an eyewitness to these things. And it was like, listen, whatever opposition you're getting from the religious leaders, from, from the Jews, you can stand firm because you have, you have every reason.
reason to believe that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And you can also stand firm against um, anyone from outside of the Jewish religion who's, who's persecuting you. Because there was so much persecution now coming against the church. You can really know that Jesus has brought the arrival of the promised kingdom. It's like he's saying, hey, this is not a Jewish cult. Because that was something they were accused of. Jesus really is the king we've been promised. And I want to just show you. I want to show you how that works. This is what the Gospel of Matthew is like. So when it comes to us reading this Gospel today, the question always is, like, there's a, a lot of culture uh, and there's a lot of time that's been removed from us today, from then. So what is it that we need to see? What is it that we need to notice? If this was good news for the first century believers, what do we need to be picking up in our reading of it in the 21st century? So to put it simply, Matthew's gospel is just, like I said, a stunning record of the legitimacy of Jesus to do all that needed to be done and accomplished for the plan of salvation for humanity. Matthew just is this perfect bridge between the Old and New Testaments. The Old Covenant under the law and the New Covenant Salvation that is available for everyone through Jesus. Sometimes we do miss these things when we read the Bible simply because the phrases, like I said, don't always carry the same cultural or historical weight as they did for their original audiences. And so let me just point out a couple of things that you're going to read as you look at the next time you are in Matthew. And I encourage you to, to read it over this week. These are three things that come up in this book that, uh, again, we might miss them because they're not phrases that we would necessarily use, but they literally should serve to anchor our faith in Jesus. The first one is one we've already mentioned, which is that he is called the son of David 17 times in the Gospel of Matthew, more than any other book in the New Testament. And this is, again, because of the fulfillment of that eternal Davidic kingship. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, God makes this promise to David. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's a big promise. Forever is a big promise. And I don't know uh, what you believe about God, but I will tell you that when God promises something, he will fulfill it. But how do you fulfill such a big promise like this? David was a mighty warrior. He was uh, so well known for destroying Israel's enemies, for establishing a throne in Jerusalem. And so here's Jesus being called the son of David, who is now again a mighty warrior, destroying God's enemies and reestablishing the throne in Jerusalem and reigning forever. That's what they expected him to do. It's just going to look different than what they thought. And so again, that's why in Matthew 1, 1, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. So this Jesus is heir to this throne of David. He's in the line of David, literally in his genealogy. But more than that, and the important thing here for Jesus is that he is the last king of Israel. He will never be replaced. He will never lose his kingdom to sin or corruption. 
He will rule forever with perfect justice and righteousness because he is everything that a human king couldn't be. Jesus was that, and Jesus continues to be that. Why? Because he died, but then he was raised to life. And so he is the eternal king continuing to sit on the throne. And in this case, symbolically, the throne of David, the fulfillment of the promise. The second thing you read a lot in the Gospel of Matthew is this um, is the Son of God, actually in all of the Gospels, of course. The Son of God. The fact that, that Jesus was not uh, simply just someone born uh, to this family who lived uh, in Nazareth and was born in Bethlehem, but no, Jesus was the Son of God. We read this in, in Matthew's Gospel from his conception to his return from Egypt to his baptism, being tempted by the devil, acknowledged by demons, his unique relationship with the Heavenly Father over and over and over again. Jesus' divinity, the fact that he's a son of God, was, uh, was brought to the forefront. Jesus calls God his Father 23 times in this Gospel. 15 of those times are unique to this, to this, to this account. You don't read them in the other Gospels. It's really important for Matthew that you understand that Jesus was no ordinary man. He was fully man, but he was fully God. Jesus is not just a friend of sinners or one who came and spoke truth to power or someone who just taught scripture in a revolutionary, interesting way in his time. He is divine. And according to Philippians 2, which we're going to read in a little bit, he shares a nature with God because he is God, but, but made the choice, chooses to make himself nothing, humbly allowing himself to die on the cross. And this means that he can do for us what no other human could do, pay the price for our sins once and for all. You and I don't have that righteousness in ourselves to make that kind of payment. Jesus did. And so we see God, the Son, sacrificing himself for us. And the third thing you're going to see about Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew that is so important for us to understand is that he's called something a little more ambiguous over and over again, the Son of Man. And scholars would agree that it's ambiguous on purpose because in the Old Testament, this phrase was used by Ezekiel about himself, about um, showing the frailty of, of humanity before God. But in, in the prophetic work, uh, uh, work of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel points to the Messiah and uses this same phrase, son of man. And so Jesus uses this term about himself a bunch of times, which is really interesting. Why, why this? Why son of man? Why didn't he just say, um, I am the Messiah. I am the son of God. I am the son of David, the king you were looking for, period. Why did he not say that? It was likely because he wanted to communicate his identity apart from what was popular in the culture of, at the time of what those things meant. When you said the word Messiah, there was a very specific picture of what that was going to look like. You probably heard this, that, that they're going to overthrow the Romans. They were going to establish the kingdom on earth. Um, and they were going to, uh, the Jews were going to rule over all things and all of that oppression would be broken and all of those things. And Jesus wasn't planning to do that at all. As you've read the story, you probably know that's not what he did. So he wanted to make sure that they, they weren't just attaching meaning to something that was never going to happen the way that they thought it was going to happen. So this title, Son of Man, gave Jesus the best chance to describe the kingdom of God to them 
in a way that would make them help them will help them understand what it would truly be like and redefine what people were expecting from the kingdom. The son of man in this gospel is a humble servant who has come to forgive sins of, of the common sinners in his earthly ministry. The son of man is the suffering servant whose atoning death and resurrection will redeem his people. And the son of man is the glorious king and judge who will return to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth over and over and over again in this gospel. One commentator said it like this, right at the beginning, the genealogy is to prove that Jesus is the son of David. The title son of David is used more often in Matthew than any other gospel. The wise men came looking for him, who is the king of the Jews. The triumphal entry is a deliberate dramatized claim to be king. Before Pilate, Jesus deliberately accepts the name of king. Even on the cross, the title of king is affixed, even if it is in mockery over his head. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew shows us Jesus quoting the law and five times abrogating it with the regal, but I say to you, the final claim of Jesus is, all authority has been given to me. Matthew's picture of Jesus is of the man born to be king. Jesus walks through his pages as if in the purple and gold of royalty. So church, extra, extra, read all about it. Jesus is king, and it is very good news. In Matthew 19, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Here's why Jesus as king is very, very good news for you. Is that this king rules a kingdom that is exactly what you're looking for. He describes it in lots of places. This verse is one of them. That he's going to bring perfect justice, this king. That every wrong will be made right and no one will be left behind in his kingdom. There's no one that's on the outskirts. There's no one that is forgotten. Everyone is invited. No one is left behind. In Jesus' kingdom, there is perfect holiness, which means there's no more sin and brokenness. How many of us would love to see a world where there wasn't so much brokenness? How many of us would like our lives to be ones that aren't consistently plagued by sin and brokenness ourselves? This king has ushered in a kingdom where this is possible. No more separation from God. This king also has perfect knowledge. We prayed for our leaders this morning. What do we pray for our leaders? That they would have wisdom. That they would know what to do. The king we're talking about in his kingdom doesn't need anyone to pray for him. He already knows all the things. He knows what to do. He has perfect knowledge of every person and every heart. He, just like in the Old Testament when David was being chosen as king and all of his older brothers were rejected and the, the, the conversation with the prophet is this, what? 
Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. In Jesus' kingdom, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what your station in life. It doesn't matter what people think about you. It matters about your heart. That's all that the Lord sees. He perfectly understands all things. And in the kingdom of Jesus, there is a perfect reward. Do you know what I love about the old hymns? We sung about that a lot. Right? Like, and I think a lot of them were written in, in times, really, really desperate times in, in culture and society. And there was a reminder to the saints that if you, if you are faithful to the end, your reward will be great. Now, we don't serve Jesus for a reward, but it is available to us. There are so many promises from God. And in this kingdom, there is perfect reward. Every sacrifice that you make, everything that you lay down, everything will be worth more than you can imagine. And the things that you give up, all of that, it will matter for this life, but it will matter for all of eternity. He sees everything. In fact, if you want to know what kind of kingdom that this king is going to rule over forever, check the Sermon on the Mount. This famous passage in in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. It's nothing like the world that we live in now. He says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. You are salt and light. Your heart is the source of your actions. He says, love your enemies. He says, pray and forgive. He says, don't worry about anything. Ask God for good gifts and be wise in every way. This kingdom is not a political system. It's a completely different kingdom. And it's exactly what your heart is longing for. That's the king that you serve when you trust in Jesus. In my CP group this week, we were talking about kingdoms. They were talking about the fact that we were kind of bringing this back to the Sermon on the Mount. And it was just so interesting to hear uh, somebody was sharing about how we, we, so we sometimes fight so hard against the kingdoms of this world. We try to change the, the, the systems and the structures. And when there's injustice, there's sometimes that we need to do that. But one thing we have to remember is that we are not serving this kingdom. That our job is to know the king and the kingdom that we belong to. And then walk out his principles. The Sermon on the Mount, great example of that. Walk out his principles in the world. And literally walk like citizens of his kingdom in all of the places that we find ourselves in this worldly kingdom for now. We are literally bringing the kingdom of our king into the kingdom of this world and walking that out as Christ followers. That's our responsibility. It's not a political system. It's a very different kingdom. So the invitation and encouragement from the gospel of Matthew, the good news, the banner, the headline here, is that we have the opportunity to choose right now to serve the true king. We can choose him today. And when we do, we receive all of the grace, forgiveness, freedom, and purpose that we can imagine. It's all of the things that our hearts are actually longing for. And there's an encouragement in here also to just keep going. Don't give up. Don't hesitate. Don't look back. If you're following Jesus, you are a citizen of his kingdom. Colossians says he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. 
For you have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves, through whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You've been qualified to share in that inheritance. So don't look back. Don't hesitate. Don't worry. It will be worth it. And that promise, friends, is all over scripture. Matt, would you come and lead us this morning? Jesus is the king. Jesus is your king. Maybe this morning we need a moment to recalibrate our thinking. What kingdom do we find ourselves walking out in our everyday life? In this kingdom you are safe, you are secured, you are held, you are loved, and you are called. And you are asked to walk out the principles of this kingdom everywhere you go. This is why I need a mic that is attached to my ear. This is awkward. Everybody's okay. Everybody's okay. Because when we are serving this king, I just wanted to remind you this morning, church, from this gospel. That in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. Something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And being made in human likeness. That's the Jesus that came for us. That's the son of David. The son of God. The son of man. And I want you to never lose sight of the fact that. And being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. So therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, you serve the true king. He's all over the pages of scripture. So we inv- I just want to invite you to be challenged by that and be reminded about his kingdom today and who you truly serve. Let's stand as the team leads us this morning just to kind of take a moment and recalibrate. Lord Jesus, we declare that you are king. Over our lives, over everything, it's, it's not because we say it that it's true. It just already is true, and we are declaring it for our own lives and hearts. That you are the master of all things. That everything was created through you and for you. You are before all things, and in you all things hold together. God, I pray that we would never lose sight of the fact that when we invited you, Jesus, into our lives, that we made you the Lord of our lives, that we became citizens of a new kingdom, and that you are calling us to walk out that kingdom, your will on earth as it is in heaven, as we walk into the days that you have planned for us here. And we also thank you, Lord Jesus, that someday we will forever be citizens of your kingdom. There won't be a a duality of kingdom. We won't be 
walking out your kingdom in, in the kingdom of this world. No, we, we will be in your kingdom forever. That's the promise that we deeply and excitedly await. But in these days and these moments, Holy Spirit, bring our attention back to the king. And in every way that we have set up our own kingdom or are serving a different kingdom or I've set up something else to worship or to honor above you, Lord Jesus, we invite you by the power of your spirit to recalibrate our hearts. Bring us to repentance and to a new way. We worship you, King Jesus. King of our hearts, King of our lives, King of all.